Hi, this is Auxiliary Captain Brett Dietrich with the Salvation Army of Leavenworth County, and I want to welcome you to our sermon podcast. My prayer is that as you listen to the messages, the Lord will speak to you through His Word for His people. If you're looking for a church home, we encourage you to join us for our celebration service every Sunday morning at 1045 a.m. Our church is located on the corner of 6th and Walnut Streets in Leavenworth. We're just a group of passionate followers of Jesus Christ with a desire to worship Him and to take His message of hope to the heartland. You can find out more information about the Salvation Army of Leavenworth County by browsing our website at centralusa.salvationarmy.org slash Leavenworth. Thanks for following along. All right, well, I invite you to find your Bibles, and we're going to open them today to Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. While you're turning there, how many of you remember these three jokesters? That's right, Larry, Curly, and Moe. They were better known as the Three Stooges. These three pioneers of TV comedy had this knack to make us laugh at their crazy antics and mischievous tricks. Remember all the, the head bonking, the, the finger pokes between the eyes, the, the twisting of the nose with the pliers, the slaps in the face, and I mean, all those zany things that these stooges would do to each other. Who can forget the wee 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 and the nyuck nyuck nyucks and, and the knuckleheads and oh, wise guy, right? We remember all that. But the thing is, despite all of this conflict that was generated in each of these episodes to get a laugh, you still had this feeling that Larry, Curly, and Moe, that they were still friends. Are you surprised at the thought that Larry and Curly and Moe, that they have this peaceful relationship? I mean, think about it. Why else would these friends, why else would they stay together? Now, I know, I know the Three Stooges is a TV make-believe thing, but what if you treated two of your friends the way that these comedians treated each other? Would your relationship continue, or would it end in a ball of fire? Is peace a characteristic of your relationships? Have you ever been really angry with someone? Now, don't raise your hand. I'm not going to look. I don't want to see. Perhaps you were so angry with someone that you felt like you could just, just want to kill them, right? Have you ever been that angry with someone? Again, no hands. But then, what do you do? You catch yourself, right? And you say to yourself, I can't kill someone. That's murder, and that's a sin. Well, that sure is a good thought to have because you shouldn't kill anyone out of anger. However, Jesus, he pushes us farther on this issue of anger and he challenges us not only on that sinful act of the murder, but also the sinfulness of the anger itself. Let's go ahead and look at today's passage and let's discover together how to make peace, not war. Please stand in honor of reading God's word. I'll be reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at an altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and then you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we pray for your wisdom. 
And Lord, we want to look at some of the sins that we see people do, the murders and this and that. But what you're telling us here is our anger is just as much a sin as their acts of murder. So Lord, I pray that you'll just search our hearts today. Help us understand the things that we think, the things that we almost do, are things that we need to correct so that we can live a right life with you. Help us be the people you call us to be. Help us be the church that reaches out to those around us with love and all that we do. It's in your name that we pray and all God's children said, amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Now, let me begin with this. Imagine if I would have titled today's message, When Anger Turns Deadly. Think about that. Now, that sounds kind of like a Dateline episode, doesn't it? You know, like one of those true crime TV documentaries. Today's exclusive, a chilling tale of rage and revenge when anger turns deadly. Think of a title like that, and I'm guessing you pictured some kind of violent situation. Some, someone snaps, there's some offense or some disagreement and some kind of friction that gets escalated all of a sudden, leading to this violent encounter in which someone loses their life when anger turns deadly. Now, to be fair, we all get angry, don't we? We do, right? But have you ever been so angry you wanted to lash out at someone and you just wanted to wring their neck? So angry you wanted to inflict some kind of pain on them and you're thinking, well, yes, but that doesn't mean I wanted to strangle them. I mean, sure, I was mad, but so what? Everyone gets mad. And that's true, isn't it? We do. Everyone does get mad. And Jesus wouldn't disagree with that. In fact, in our text this morning, it's built around that truth. It doesn't take much observation to realize that there's an awful lot of conflict going on in our world. We see it in homes, at the office, at schools, between spouses, between employers and employees. Just about anywhere people are, they're so often at each other's throats. And sometimes, unfortunately, as we found out, we see it even here in the church. It's so easy for conflict to to arise. And our natural tendency when there's conflict is to react with what? More conflict right? We want to heap it on. In the musical production, Fiddler on the Roof, we find the Russians of 1905 telling the people of Tyvee's little village that they had three days to vacate their homes or they would be destroyed. One of Tyvee's friends cried out in anger, we should defend ourselves an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, to which Tyvee insightfully replied, very good, that way the whole world will be blind and toothless. I mean, think about it. our natural instinct is to what? We want to fight back, right? If we'd be honest with ourselves, many of us would have to admit it doesn't take much to get us going. We're quick to react and oftentimes much more forcefully than is necessary. The problem is when we react, we end up driving ourselves farther apart. Experience tells us it's easier to drive people apart than it is to bring them together. And that's why peacemaking is considered a spiritual discipline. Because, think about it, it doesn't happen naturally. Nevertheless, it's something that is very important to God. In Jesus' own words in Matthew 5, 9, he, this was spoken during his Sermon on the Mount, where he said this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Paul, writing to the Romans, gave this, some direction to them in Romans 12, 18. He said, If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. That's a good goal for all of us right there. And that's in contrast with Tyvee's friend who said, what? An eye for an eye. James 3, 17 and 18 tells us, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. 
What an amazing statement that is, that people like you and I, as imperfect as we are, are capable of raising a harvest of righteousness. How does that happen? It happens by embracing peacemaking. Scripture is telling us there's something about peacemaking that's so much in line with God's character that when we become these peacemakers, we're called what we're called sons of God. We're showing wisdom that comes only from heaven, and our efforts will result like it said, in a full a harvest of righteousness. It should be obvious then that being a peacemaker is an important part of our Christian lives. Why? Because God is deeply concerned about our interpersonal relationships. Remember two of the greatest commandments. What are they? Love the Lord your God. Then love your neighbor as yourself, right? And the opposite is certainly true as well. Proverbs 6.16 tells us that there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Among them, and this is a few verses later in Proverbs 6.19, it says, A man, one who sows discord among brothers. Mm, he despises one who sows discord among brothers. The one who stirs that dissension, he says, is detestable. He's detestable to God. I mean, that's a pretty strong statement there. That's some deep emotion, but in a positive sense, is expressed for those who are peacemakers. For He says what? They are sons of God. They display the wisdom that comes only from heaven. They will reap this harvest of righteousness, just as great as is God's hatred of people who stir up all this dissension among people. That's how great his appreciation is for his love for the peacemakers. It would seem that peacemaking should be high on our priority list. Let's see what we can learn this morning about making peace, not war, and how warring stems from our problem with anger. So first, let's look at, under number one, the problem with anger. A young girl needed to write a paper for school, and she asked her father to give her help. This is the question she has. She said, Dad, what's the difference between anger and exasperation? Her father replied, well, it's mostly a matter of degree. Let me show you what I mean. And with that, the father, he picks up his cell phone, and he puts it on speakerphone, and he dials a random number. The man answers the phone on the other end, and the father says, Hello, is Melvin there? The man that answered the phone said, there is no one living here named Melvin, and he abruptly hung up the phone. See, said the father, he said, that man was likely a little unhappy with our call. He was probably very busy doing something, and our call annoyed him. Now watch. The father dialed that same number again, said, hello, is Melvin there? Now look here, said the heated reply. You just called a number, this number a minute ago, and I told you that there was no Melvin here, and he slammed down the receiver this time. The father turned to his daughter and said, you see, that was anger. Now I'll show you what exasperation means. He dialed that same number again. The angry voice shouted, hello. The father calmly said, hello, this is Melvin. Have I had any calls? There are so many things that can cause us to become angry. And as you know, our society is rife with all kinds of angry eruptions. Almost every day we hear news stories about anger and violence. We see or read or hear about these outbursts of anger far too often on the highways, in grocery stores, in workplaces, in schools, in politics, even in the sports arena. And while anger is a God-given emotion given to us for our well-being and good health, Satan has kind of twisted that. And we've been conditioned by what we see in our homes and our schools and in our society. And we let our anger then get out of control and it becomes destructive in all kinds of ways. So under A, let's look at anger. It's a heart problem. A little boy was trying to sell a worn out lawnmower and a preacher walked up and the boy tried to persuade him to buy that lawnmower. The preacher pulled the rope several times to make sure that the lawnmower would start and nothing happened. Not a spit, not a sputter, nothing. 
the boy told the preacher, well, you'd have to kick it and say a few cuss words while you're doing it, and then the motor would start. The preacher said, well, son, I can't do that. It's been a lot of years since I said a cuss word. The little boy replied, oh, you just keep pulling that rope and it'll come back to you. <laughs> Most of us battle on a daily basis the temptation to lose our cool. It could be something as little as not being able to get the mower started. It could be a frustration with a coworker or a boss. It could be a deep-seated anger at a parent or a spouse. God knows our tendency to struggle in this area of anger. His word, it gives us some instruction in this matter. Let's pay close attention so that we might honor God in all things, even in our anger. In verse 21 through 22 of our text, it says this. It says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus gives the root cause of murder. He says it's anger. Your anger is the root cause of that murder. It, it has to do with the attitude of the heart of the person. The problem with murder, it's not just the physical act of murder itself. It starts where? In the heart. That's where it starts. And Jesus said, if anyone is angry with his brother or sister, he's going to be subject to that very same judgment. Jesus doesn't just denounce the act of murder. He denounces the attitude of anger that's in the heart of every one of us. Does Jesus forbid every kind of anger in this passage? No. Understand, anger in and of itself is neutral. It is not sinful. The Septuagint translation of Psalm 4.4 reads this, In your anger do not sin. There's a righteous anger and an unrighteous anger. You can be angry and not sin. But if you cross that line, we can be angry and sin. Righteous anger is upset over sin, upset over the injustices that are going on. It's okay to be angry when we see the evil work of a terrorist and the people that suffer from their wickedness. It's okay to be angry when we hear about a child being abused or a woman being raped, God gets angry at those things. In the Old Testament, it mentions God's wrath or anger 375 times. And 82% of the time the Hebrew word for anger is used in the Old Testament, it's used in conjunction with God. Jesus demonstrated righteous anger. Remember in Mark 3, Jesus attended the synagogue service on the Sabbath. Also in attendance was a man with a paralyzed hand, and the Jewish leaders were watching closely just to see what Jesus would do. They were ready to express anger and indignation if Jesus did something. Let's pick it up in Mark chapter 3, verse 3. It says, And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he asked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the men, Stretch out your hand. He stretched out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Even though Jesus prohibits a certain kind of anger in Matthew 5, he's not referring to a righteous anger. Sin and injustice make God angry. They should make his people angry as well. It should make us alarmed at what's going on. Anger is a divinely implanted emotion, and God, he aligned that with our instinct for right. And it's supposed to be constructive spiritual purposes that we use our anger for. The person who cannot get angry at evil is a person who lacks enthusiasm for good. If you cannot hate wrong, it is very questionable whether you really love righteousness. So what's Jesus talking about? Jesus, he's forbidding vindictive anger. Vindictive anger lives where? It lives in the heart. 
and is unforgiving. It holds grudges. The Greek word that Jesus uses here concerning anger has the extended meaning of hate that is nursed inside a person. It's explosive. This vindictive anger is bitter, it's spiteful, it's quick, it's jealous, and it's rude. It's quick-tempered, it's out of control, it wishes to harm. Vindictive anger is vengeful, hateful, selfish anger that can lead to harsh words and even violent physical actions. It's a desire to do this great harm or even death be rained down upon the object of your anger. In Genesis 4, we see an example of vindictive anger. Cain, he murders his brother Abel there. You see, Abel... Abel made this good sacrifice. It was pleasing to God. But Cain gave a sacrifice that God rejected because Cain didn't give his very best to God. Let's pick up what happened next in Genesis 4, verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. So first understand, anger is a heart problem. Then under B, we see that anger is a hurt problem. There are consequences for uncontrolled, vindictive anger. We see that the spiritual principle in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. It says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Now, the spiritual principle here also means that you will reap more than you sow. Jesus talked about sowing the seed in good soil. Remember, he talked about producing 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. But understand, bad seed multiplies as well. Look with me at Hosea chapter 8, verse 7. It says, For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Hosea here, he's talking about sowing the wind and then reaping a whirlwind off of that. You think that what you do will produce things that, well, they'll just simply blow over. But in reality, what you've done is you've created a storm, a storm that is destructive. There are three obvious reasons that Jesus forbids vindictive anger. The first reason is because it hurts people. In 2001, hockey dad Thomas Junta of Reading, Massachusetts beat Michael Costin to death. Costin was a volunteer referee for a pickup hockey game, and Junta just, he was upset with his officiating. And Junta threw Costin to the ice. He, he sat on him. He started beating him in the face. He's banging his head on the ice multiple times. The autopsy report showed that the victim's brain was shaken so badly that the blood vessels ruptured, causing extensive bleeding in the brain and the spinal column. Junta was sentenced to six to ten years in jail. It also came to light that he was physically abusive of his wife. When it came time for his parole hearing, after six years, the parole board denied him early release because they said he had not demonstrated any remorse for his actions. He wasn't released until his full term was carried. Someone once said that anger is just one letter short of danger. Now, some of you are going to be thinking about that for a moment. Take anger, A-N-G-E-R, add a D to the front. You end up with danger. Anger is just one letter short of danger. It isn't just physical hurt, but also emotional hurt. Vindictive anger damages people in multiple ways. It can destroy your relationship with your spouse, your children, and your friends. The second reason Jesus forbids vindictive anger is because it hurts me. It hurts you. 
Will Rogers once said, people who fly into a rage always make a bad landing. On April 28, 1993, a Serbian basketball player named Slobodan Djankovic, he was playing in a Greek professional league in a playoff game. It was the semifinals. And toward the end of this closely contested game, Djankovic, he drove to the basket. He hit the layup, but the referee called him for a charging foul, wiping away the basket, also giving him his fifth foul, and he was out of the game. Well, out of anger at the referee, Junta walked over to the basket and started slamming his head against the thinly padded goalpost. Jankovic hit it so hard, he slumped to the floor and was unable to get up. He had suffered permanent damage to his spinal cord. He was unable to walk for the rest of his life. After using a wheelchair for the final 13 years of his life, Jankovic gained a large amount of weight and exerted too much stress on his heart, and he eventually died of heart failure at the age of 42. Proverbs 29.11 says, Fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm to the end. It was Benjamin Franklin who said, Whatever is begun in anger ends in shame. A seminary professor placed a huge dartboard in the classroom. He asked the students to draw a picture of someone who made them angry. One lady drew a picture of her boyfriend who had just broken up with her. Other students, they drew pictures of various people who had hurt them. The professor called to them, the students, one by one, up to the front to pin their pictures to that dartboard. He handed them some darts. He told them, throw those darts as hard as you can and hit that dartboard. And so they did. The pictures were ripped to pieces. As they surveyed their work, each of the students, they smiled as they expressed their anger against the person that was represented on that picture. Then the students were told to sit down. With everyone watching the professor, he slowly turned around the dartboard. And on the back of the dartboard was a large picture of Jesus. Each dart that shredded the pictures on the front of that board also damaged and shredded the picture of Jesus on the back. The professor then read these words to the kids, words of Jesus. He said from Matthew 25, 40, he said, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Ouch, right? That's the problem with anger. Next, under number two, let's look at how we must deal with anger. After spending three and a half hours in the tag office, enduring the long lines, the surly clerks, the insane regulations, a man stopped by a toy store to pick up a gift for his son. He made his selection. It was a baseball bat. He took it up to the checkout counter. Clerk asked, cash or charge? Cash, the man snapped back. Well, he, he caught himself, and he kind of apologized to the clerk for his rudeness and said, sorry, I've just spent the afternoon down at the tag office. To which the clerk kind of asked sweetly, shall I gift wrap the bat or are you going back there? <laughs> so under A, how should we be addressing anger? Look with me at verses 23 and 24 from our text again. It says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The man or woman who takes anger seriously should be the man or woman, according to Jesus, who takes reconciliation seriously. If you know your anger has hurt someone else, for example, if you know your angry outburst, if it has fractured a relationship, so that now, as verse 23 of our text says, that your brother has something against you, if you know that, he says you will seek reconciliation. You will seek that forgiveness of that person who was victimized by your anger. How high should that reconciliation be on our priority list? What does Jesus tell us? He tells us it should be where? Our first order of spiritual business. 
when there is unresolved issues like that, God's not interested in our church attendance. He's not interested in our Bible reading, the consistency of our prayer life. He certainly wants to use those things, but he wants to use those things to drive you to reconciliation. The first thing on your list should be reconciliation. Now, if that's true for you this morning, you got some unreconciled business. If that's first on God's priority list for you, is there someone you need to go to in order to, to seek this forgiveness because of your anger? Are you here this morning? Are you trying to feel spiritually better by coming and by singing and by praying to God and rather than obeying God like you're supposed to? If you are, Jesus is calling you to humble yourself. You need to step out in faith. But if you do, well, you say, well, can I be sure that person is going to forgive me, that things will be better? No, you can't be sure. But God doesn't call you to go only if you know things are going to be better. He only calls us to do what we can do. As Paul said in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But what if we don't choose God's path? Well, that brings us to our next issue. Under B, what happens when we are ignoring anger? We see this in verses 25 and 26 from our text. It says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. While we might look at this passage as another bit of practical advice here on legal matters about personal grievances, I almost look at this and I think it's more of a parable that Jesus is trying to tell us here. But if that's the case then what's the point of this short little parable? Well, the point is this. He's saying deal seriously and swiftly with your offenses before things get turned over to the judge. Notice how this whole passage, Matthew 25, 21, and 26, our text for today, it begins and it ends with this idea of judgment. In the middle of this passage, verses 23 and 24, it goes on and it talks about judgment. Why so much guilt and judgment in this short little passage? Why? Because Jesus wants to sober us up. He wants his listeners, he wants you and I, he wants us to understand if you're to be whole, if you're to be holy, if you're to be righteous, if you're to walk this good path that he calls for you, if you're to be living a life that's pleasing to the one who gave his life for you, then you have to deal with your heart. Goodness that's merely external, that isn't at work in the deepest parts of who you are, is not the goodness of God. In short, Jesus wants us to deal with our insufficient ideas about what is good and what is right. Let me close this morning looking at under number three, what God expects from us. It's becoming a peacemaker. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What's beautiful here is Jesus calls every believer to be a peacemaker, both in the church and in the community. And he calls us sons of God. Christians should never see conflict or be responsible for it. Yet, we find that conflict is so often the result of coming to Jesus. For example, a college professor was sharing his personal testimony in chapel one day, and he told how once he accepted Jesus Christ into his life, he was forced to leave his home. Are we shocked by that? I mean, should we be? I don't think so, because Jesus actually warned us that things like this might happen. Look what he said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 and 35. He said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Why is there such a lack of peace in the world today? 
The fact is that peace, it has never been characteristic of man's earthly pilgrimage. The rebellion and the fall of man in that Garden of Eden led to the world without peace. Jesus then came into the world so that we might be reconciled to God. Those he has reconciled have been called to become agents of his peace in this world. Peace doesn't just refer to the absence of disharmony and conflict. Peace refers to an individual's total well-being, that peace that's filled whole and complete within you. A peaceful person really has it all together or has all their ducks in a row. What does that mean to everyday life? How can we become these peacemakers? Well, you and I, we need to understand what peace really is. Jesus said in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. From a human perspective, peace is the absence of conflict. If you're not involved in any shoot 'em up war, well, then you have peace in your life. This kind of peace is only superficial. Nations may sign a ceasefire simply because they're worn out. They're, they're tired of all the bloodshed. However, the issues of war, the, the things that were going on in their heart and the heart of their nations, it still remains. Sure, feuding friends and families may declare a truce, but we know that that doesn't necessarily mean that all their differences have been reconciled. The weapon of the fists and the tongues may be disarmed, but the hearts are still hard and resistant toward each other. Let's just lay out our cards on the table this morning. If you lack peace with your relationships, if you have ongoing conflict and fighting, if you carry resentment or bitterness or hard feelings towards others, then you don't have peace within you. God's perspective of peace isn't superficial. God looks for peace deep down inside the heart. How many husbands and wives have ever had an argument? Haven't we all? When Stephanie and I have a disagreement, does that mean we don't have peace in our relationship? No, it doesn't. Because why? Peace prevails. That's why we've been together 33 years. Peace is what keeps us connected to each other. Jesus was at peace as those soldiers, as they beat him, they spit on his face, they placed that crown of thorns on his head, they were mocking him as the king of the Jews. Jesus was at peace as those nails were driven through his hands and his feet into that cross, and the sword was pierced into his side. Colossians 1.20 says, It was through what his son did that God cleared a path for everyone to come to him, all things in heaven and on earth, for Christ's death on the cross has made peace with God for all by his blood. Meaning, at that point, peace was established once and for all by Christ's death on the cross. So, how can we share this peace? Or how can we be that sense of peace to others? Be that peacemaker. First, under A, we're called to right action. Jesus calls us to bring this peace, as well as to make peace man to man. The peace we've received, we're to share that peace with others. Notice what Jesus didn't say in the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't say, blessed are the peace thinkers. Blessed are the peace lovers. Blessed are the peace talkers. He said, what? Blessed are the peacemakers. Making peace is an active process. You have to take the initiative to bring peace where peace has been broken. Peacemakers take risks. They're willing to step out into the midst of a misunderstanding and fight in order to bring the peace. A peacemaker will bring understanding even when they're being attacked because they have a peace within them, a peace that's greater than any conflict that they're in. Do you remember Rip Van Winkle? He slept through life, didn't he? He was a man at peace with himself, never, never rocking the boat, never making any waves 
how peaceful it would be, right, to sit back and just enjoy life without anything to keep us awake at night or anything to keep us awake through service. But look, peacemakers cannot be passive. It's not good enough just to, to pray for peace. We can't ignore things or hope that would just go away simply saying, well, things will work out. Give it, give it time. It'll all, it'll all work. It'll blow over. Friends, that'll never do. Peacemakers step in to defuse the ticking time bomb that's about to blow apart relationships, and they mend those wounds, the wounds of those that are injured. 2 Timothy 2.22 tells us, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. You and I are commanded to pursue peace. We're to take action. We're to chase this peace down. We must stay in hot pursuit of peace and, and never let it get away from us because peacemakers take the right action. Lastly, under B, peacemakers also have the right attitude. Realistically, any one of us, anyone is capable of creating a rift or tearing apart the peace people have with one another if we let them. Even we can break the peace with misspoken words. Maybe it's deceit. Maybe it's gossip. Whatever it is. Unity can be broken as simple as pushing Humpty Dumpty off the wall, right? It's almost impossible then to put all those pieces back together on Humpty Dumpty. Preserving and protecting the peace begins with where? Our attitude. It starts with our attitude. We can't let others think or say, well, Humpty Dumpty got what he deserved. Proverbs 26.20 says, Without wood, a fire goes out. Without a gossip, a quarrel dies down. How are you going to respond when contention, when disagreements arise? Will you add fuel onto that fire? Will you unknowingly and or maybe even purposefully say things that will drive a wedge between people or stir up trouble for someone? As it was once said, if you can't say something nice, just don't say anything at all. Proverbs 15, 18 says, Hot tempers start fights. A calm, cool spirit keeps the peace. Are you known as a hothead? Does your anger get out of control? Friends, understand, it's not a sin to become angry. Sin occurs when we misappropriate or we respond to that anger in the wrong way. The Bible says in Ephesians 4, 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do you deal with your anger quickly? Or do you let it boil over day after day? After day. Proverbs 17, 14 says, Starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam, so drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. You see, only a fool would start an argument or break the peace between people. You think, well, Pastor, that, that's a pretty strong statement. Imagine the fool who's at a dam and he starts breaking holes in the dam. Soon the water starts to run through that dam, right? And foolishly, he's like, well, let's do one more over here. He does it more and more until what? The dam breaks, right? And he gets swept away in the water and he drowns. Don't think something like that couldn't happen. If you do, then you don't know how foolish some people in our world can be. The Bible says drop the matter. Drop it before the dispute breaks out. Said a little bit more bluntly, it goes more like this. Shut up already before the damage is done that you cannot repair. Am I allowed to say that up here? Okay, thank you. When all is said and done, some folks may be surprised by the ending. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are called sons of God. The doctrinally pure are not guaranteed a place in heaven. Being a child of God is not a matter of, of head knowledge, but it's a heart wisdom. It's not a matter of how much you know, but it's about who you know and how you live your life in response to what you know. God takes your relationship with other believers seriously, and so should you. 
If you're unable to live at peace with your brothers and sisters here on earth, how in the world are you going to live with them forever in heaven? Only peacemakers will emulate Jesus and live their lives at peace with God and their fellow men, just like our Lord did. I mean, Jesus emphasized this same point later on in the Sermon on the Mount. We see it in Matthew 5, 43 to 45. It says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Understand, God doesn't treat some people better than others. He loves the evil and he loves the good all the same. He extends his peace, his love, and his mercy to all just the same. We're blessed to be those who are, have received his goodness, to be called the sons of God. Likewise, we need to follow his example then and bring that peace to all around us. Because if we do that, then we will be true sons and daughters of God. Living as a peacemaker isn't easy, but we don't have to do it alone. Understand, Jesus, he gave us the spirit to help us, the spirit of peace. That spirit lives within us. By the power of God, we can live as peacemakers. Colossians 3.15 says, And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. Friends, make peace. You're most joyfully blessed as God's children. So why not make that peace? Let me close with this. Can you think of someone somewhere who, whom you're holding something against? Or has God reminded you of someone who seems to be holding something against you? If so, what should you do? Well, if God is convicting you in any of these areas, any of these things, just follow his advice. Take the action he's calling you to take. Go to the one that you have hurt or the one who has hurt you and, and get involved in helping others and unraveling these relationships and making them at peace again. Do you have a broken relationship, a breaking relationship right now? Will you take action, the necessary action to sow these seeds of peacemaking into that relationship? Because if you do, understand, you will reap a great and satisfying harvest of righteousness. That's what scripture tells us. Be a peacemaker. Let's pray. I pray that this message has touched you and created within you a passion for action. If you have any questions or you need to make a decision, we encourage you to contact your local pastor. If you don't have a local church, you may contact me through the core office at 913-682-6523. I'd love to see you in church on Sunday mornings. Come join us. I know you will be blessed. Thanks for listening to our podcast and have a blessed day.